and welcome to the fifth episode of the Totally Football Show presents Zonal Marking. This, as I'm sure you're aware now, is our six-part summer series to coincide with the release of Zonal Marking, the book written by Michael Cox. Michael, what's the full title of that book? Uh, it is Zonal Marking, the making of modern European football. And um, what's it about outside of the realms of the making and the modern and the football? Kind of a mini history of uh, the European game, focusing on seven different countries. Um, Holland, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain, Germany, and a little bit about England. I like the way it bounces from one to another. There's a smooth transition. There's a narrative arc. Good. I'm pleased to hear that. Thank yeah. you. No, I liked it. Um, today, we're talking Spain, and we're joined by the Totally Football Show Spanish correspondent, Alvaro Romeo. All right. Buenos dias. How are you? <laughs> Spain, Alvaro. Ahead of 2008, this is always really funny for younger football fans who just have this idea of Spain as mostly this all-conquering total football unit thing. But before 2008, I mean, Spain internationally were basically a misbegotten collection of cereal bottlers, weren't they? Yes, they were. And uh, I have to say that there was one expression repeated along uh, media and among supporters as well, which was the course of the quarterfinals, because Spain never made it through the quarterfinals, or at least uh, there was a, a space of 20 years in which they couldn't make it any farther than that. It was a team of underachievers. Uh, they won the European Under-21 in 1986, in 1998, the Olympic gold medal in 1992, the Under-20 World Cup in 1999, but uh, there was no crystallization of that in the senior national team. And uh, there was also some defeats with a sense of aggravation, like, for example, in World Cup 1994, when uh, Tassotti broke uh, Luis Enrique's nose, in World Cup 2002, when uh, Argandur, a referee, uh, cancelled few goals from Spain that should have counted. Morientes! No! No! Flag was up. The whistle had gone. I think it was out of play. Another great run by Joachim. Not so sure about that, but there goes no, the, but flag. the flag's up though, Peter, isn't it? There was uh, this disproportion between what the Spanish clubs were doing and what the Spanish national team was doing. And also the Spanish national team sometimes was showing how good they could be. For example, Spain has never lost a World Cup qualifying game at home, which is something really sp impressive that very few national teams have done. So there was this question of what do we do now? How can Spain become competitive to the point that when Luis Aragonés was appointed as a Spanish manager in 2004, he called for a big sit-down between the Spanish Federation, the players and also Spanish media to know what we wanted Spanish football to be, how we could rebrand it. And I think that from those years between 2004 and 2008, uh, Michael in his book explains that that is the era when probably the Portuguese style became trendy. Spain was also in the making of uh, the style that they, they later in 2008 they started implementing on the game. What do you think was going wrong before? Because there's obviously no shortage of talent. No shortage of sort of natural resource of uh, of players coming through the ranks, but it always felt like a like an identity problem. There wasn't a clear idea of what a Spanish national team should be. Partly out of you have a, a complicated national history there with so many different identities. Was that at the root of it? There was a bit of that. Then um, there was a little bit of um, how we can. Uh, put an excuse on our poor performance. So there was always a scapegoat. I remember in 1994 it was Julio Salinas for not being able to, to score a one-on-one -on -one, uh, with Gianluca Pagliuca. 
A pesar que Salinas se mueve hacia una otra banda y va el balón hacia Salinas. Caminero ha recuperado el balón. Caminero, no. Qué pena. Then uh, in 1998, it was the national team manager Javier Clemente because he was building a really rock solid team, but he wasn't letting the talent flourish. Then from 2000 until 2006, probably Raúl was in some sort of way the scapegoat. Not only Raúl, but also all the derivations that came from him, like uh, which players couldn't play because Raúl was playing or which players weren't up to the level that Raúl was racing in the Spanish national team. So I think that there was the talent, but there was not a clear idea of what Spain wanted to be. Hence, uh, the sit-down of Spanish football that Luis Aragonés uh, proposed back in 2004. Just to to think about what we wanted to be, because some other countries, they had found a way sometimes, but Spain hadn't found it yet. And Michael, you actually point to Raul as being one of the, the pivotal moments where the, where the team sort of clicks into gear, the, uh, the removal of Raul. Yeah, when he dropped out of the national side, it was hugely controversial at the time. He'd been their leader for the best part of a decade, really. And it was interesting to research, go back and look at some of the stories. I mean, when Aragonis dropped him, he had pro-Raul graffiti on his outside of his house they went down to play a friendly at uh, Malaga got the train arrived at the train station loads of people there with Raul shirts singing about how he should be reinstated but they moved on and they played a slightly different style of football and, and never looked back and it's interesting when you you look at how Spain transformed to be successful after Raul Germany did a similar thing after Michael Ballack dropped out maybe England with Wayne Rooney but I think sometimes at international level when you're based so much around one player that's not always the best recipe for a successful team. So with Raul gone, uh, what kind of 11 are we looking at generally in that team? Well, they had obviously two other very good forwards uh, in Torres and Villa, who um, got along well off the pitch. Um, on the pitch, they often combine well, although the story of the next four years is really about Spain playing fewer and fewer strikers. But I think without Raul, obviously, the the department of the side that takes over is the midfield. And, uh, you know, the dominance of Xavi and Iniesta, you know, at a time when they hadn't yet reached that kind of uh, status at Barcelona. You know, they won Euro 2008 just before Guardiola had, had taken charge of those players. Um, they really stamped their authority on the tournament. And of course, just behind them, you've got uh, Marcos Senna, not a natural Spaniard but actually became quite pivotal in the fact that he allowed everyone else to play. Well, he could do plenty of things. That was the thing about Marco Senna and uh, apparently a fortless, uh, which made him look like a, a more silky player than he actually was. I think Marco Senna was favoured and benefited as well by the fact that uh, Ronald Koeman uh, burned the bridge with few Valencia players, Cañizares, Albelda and uh, Angulo and the three of them could have been capped by Spain if Luis Aragonés wanted. And uh, David Albelda was meant to be probably the Spanish holding midfielder. David Albelda didn't play for the end of the 2007-2008 season, or at least for the final third of that season. And then Marco Senas was obviously the most uh, obvious replacement. And he did a great job. And he, he, he married up really well with uh, all the Spanish little stars uh, in the making. Xavi uh, was already a really good player, but Iniesta, Silva, Cazorla, Fabregas were players that uh, they still needed to go a step further. And I think that Marco Sena was the perfect man to make them all click. And uh, what, what about the defence? The key defender really was, was Carlos Puyol. And there was Marchena at the back. This was when Sergio Ramos was still right back. And you had Cap de Villa, who was often, uh, I'd say, quite underrated because he wasn't a, a one of the bigger sides. And then, of course, 
Ika Casillas in goal. Spent a great strength and depth throughout this period with with Reina and, and Valdez coming to the fore later on. And they always pretty much stuck by Casillas. He wasn't always performing best at club level. I think he sometimes had a couple of seasons where Pepe Reina, for example, was doing better. But he was, you know, crucial off the pitch as well, and as well as, uh, you know, being a very good goalkeeper on it. You ran a competition on Twitter back when the book came out asking for most underrated European players and uh, Cap de Villa just springing into my head. <laughs> Probably should have said him, not Tony Hibbert. Um, what kind of football team are this Spanish team, though? The, the, what kind of style of football do they play? At the minute, they, they play something absolutely different. They go for at least more of a, a vertigo-type football with Luis Enrique, even though there are some patterns that still stay from the 2012 squad. But I think that in 2006, that was still to be determined. And um, I remember that Luis Aragonés, in that bracket between 2006 and 2008, he said something that uh, at the moment was quite controversial. He said that the Spanish players didn't have the physical condition to, to compete with the likes of Germany or Italy or teams like this. That was misunderstood. It was understood as an excuse from Luis Aragonés. But what he actually was implying was that Spain had to favour the best players they had. In that case, they were the short ones. Uh, Silva started playing with Dragones in 2006. Iniesta and Xavi became important. Santi Cazorla started making it to the squad as well. And Luis Aragones, at some point, uh, he said that if he couldn't take this Spanish team to the later stages of a tournament or win a tournament, he was a fiasco himself because he knew that he had a lot of talent in his hands and he just needed them to click. So in 2006, World Cup 2006, and sorry if I go back uh, too far, uh, before that World Cup, Luis Aragonés said that if Spain didn't make it to the semifinals, he will resign. Well, actually, Spain didn't make it to the semifinals in World Cup 2006, but he stayed. And the only reason why is because he had a tremendous faith in these players and he knew the mistakes that he had done in 2006. Like, for example, Capin Raúl, Capin Albelda, and some players from the old school that they weren't bringing anything new to the Spanish team and they weren't bringing anything to the new idea he had of the whole Spain. I think that from that point, and from the moment that Spain beat England in Manchester, when uh, the tiki-taka style proved that it was a great resource and tool to win a game, from that point, Spain was already ready to win a European Championship. He turned in well via. Oh, and Silva didn't get his head to that. Iniesta might fire one, and he has. And Spain take the lead. Number 16, Iniesta, only on for a few minutes. And he was an interesting choice as manager, wasn't he? Well, I mean, for a manager that oversaw the complete revolution of Spanish football in terms of the technical style, he wasn't always considered like that. He was kind of considered a bit of an old-school, back-to-basics manager. Um, you look at his successes previously in his career with Atletico Madrid, for example, they're quite defensive sides. And he'd famously had a bit of a rant about Spain trying to play too technically um, a few years before he came manager, saying that they needed to get back to the old, physical, furious Spanish style that had you know, epitomised the, the football in, in previous years. So I think he was a pragmatist more than... A, he wasn't committed to defensive football, he was a pragmatist. And the fact that he was a pragmatist and found himself with lots of technical players meant actually he had the opportunity here to, to make something first and foremost successful and then you know after they had proved that success then he could say well I hope they continue in this style for years to come and he certainly managed that uh, 2008 European Championships comes up no one is really tipping Spain they're doing the usual thing at this stage you know all international tournament predictions are Spain talented but will fall apart 
Germany will be efficient and so on and so forth. So Spain get through the group stage fairly comfortably and then they just about struggle past Italy with a penalty shootout win after a goalless draw. But this this is hailed as a major victory, isn't it, Alvaro? It is, and I believe that this is the turning point. In the same way that uh, beating England in Manchester was some sort of the proof that that was the way and the path for Spain, this was the, the definitely the, the turning point in uh, Spanish uh, recent history because I remember that the Spanish journalist uh, Enric González described playing against that Italy like uh, having a, a fight in the dark cul-de-sac and normally Italy won it <laughs> because they knew how to how to take advantage of every single adversity. And the Spanish national team had to prove that, obviously. And uh, as the game progressed, we were entering the, in the Italian territory. Uh, it was uh, an extra time, then there was a penalty shootout, and we all know that Italy knows how to handle that very well, or at least they knew at the time, because they knew Italy is a different team. But Spain made it, and uh, they qualified for the first semi-final since 1984. Vamos, vamos, hay que Spain had a lot of depth in that game. This is something that uh, I find quite remarkable now when I look at the papers and the uh, team sheets and all that. Xavi, Iniesta, had Cazorla and uh, Fabregas as replacements in Spain. Villa and Torres could play in the Spanish national team, but Dani Huiza was a really good striker who had been that year the Spanish top scorer as well. So there was not only a really good uh, lineup, but also a fantastic, fantastic squad. And the fact that Fabregas coming out from the bench most of the time played eventually more minutes in that Eurocup than Xavi Hernández tells you a lot. The players who scored the penalties were Cazorla, 23 years old, Cesc Fabregas, 21, David Villa, 26 years old. So they were young and they proved that they were ready for any challenge. And uh, that was the beginning of something really promising. And also the fact that they, they managed to dry out Italy completely. Italy didn't score any goal. And in fact, that was going to be a trend in the Spanish national team. When they won the Euro in 2008, in 2010, when they won the World Cup, and in 2012, when they won the European Championship, Spain didn't concede any goal in the knockout stages. We talk about the, for all the talk we do about the tiki-taka, we also have to say that defensively, that system was great. Then they come through to the semi-finals against Russia. Now this was the first international tournament I ever covered as a journalist working for the new paper in Singapore and I will always remember this game because I saw Carlsberg, the sponsors had had a competition it was like a a continent-wide competition and a lucky winner and their friend would basically be taken to every game of their nation's tournament and just given free Carlsberg as much as they could possibly take and uh, a Russian guy won it, a big Russian guy. I don't know if you've ever been in a drinking contest with a Russian, it's a really bad idea. (laughs) And these two they'd won and in the first group game they were absolutely mortal, second group game absolutely mortal and the poor PR women taking them around from one place to another all they were saying to themselves was it's all right. they're Russian, they won't be in the tournament very long. By the semi-finals, I've never seen two human beings drunker than these two, just being led gently around the stadiums. Can't actually remember what happened in the game. That's all that sticks for me. Well, probably that man either. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Spain won uh, 3-0. It was 0-0 at the halftime. And then after the halftime, I think that there was this uh, Spain 
team unfolding their wings. And uh, there were goals from, uh, first of all, Xavi, then uh, Danny Guiza, and then uh, David Silva. He can either go on himself or he can lay the ball across. It might be three. It's sumptuous. It's beautiful football. And Silva has surely sent Spain into the final now. I think that uh, Rasio had a decent team. Uh, and Luis Aragonés was very worried about that. He loved uh, Pavlyuchenko. Uh, he said that he was a really dangerous player. And in fact, one of the best saves I've personally seen in my life has been one from Casillas to Pavlyuchenko in that game. They had beaten... Netherlands in the quarterfinals in Russia and there was a sense as well of uh, revenge from Spain towards Goose Hiddink because he was the manager who uh, took uh, South Korea to the World Cup semi-finals in 2002 uh, knocking out Spain from the tournament so An impeachable victory that was not odd in any way No I think that Spain did uh, probably their best game in the tournament that day and uh, the 3-0 was uh, one of those victories that uh, will stay in the Spanish museum and then it comes to the final and an enforced change of system. It's not ideal before a final. No, it's not. Although, I mean, so this is David Villa who limps off midway through the semi-final, or actually in the first half of the semi-final, and Fabregas comes on. And, uh, you know, after that semi-final, Aragon is asked about how they're going to replace him. And he says, well, actually, tonight we play better just with one striker. And that's almost the moment of realisation. And after that, it's quite rare that they play two up front. Sometimes they try and accommodate two by having Torres up front and Veer on the left in the next World Cup but they basically changed their one striker system and I think Fabregas is maybe the most underrated player in terms of Spain's successes because as Alvaro says he wasn't really starting but he often well in both European Championship victories he came into the side basically played his way into the side as a substitute and they basically couldn't leave him out and then in the World Cup as well he um, he's only a substitute but he assists the winner he's not considered up there with Xavi and Iniesta as a real symbol of this side but I think had a, a huge contribution. And they're up against Germany who are two years on from finishing uh, in the semi-finals in the World Cup in their own country. We're starting to see the embryonic development of the, the new look German team and I've got to be honest I've, I've noticed that this game as well and I was convinced Germany would win. Yeah I mean it was um, it was maybe not a great uh, demonstration of Spain's passing football at times because I think it was, you know, as finals are, it's often a little bit defensive, a little bit, a little bit cagey. But they go ahead through that that really clever finish from Torres from Xavi's pass. And the interesting thing looking back at this is in the last 15-20 minutes, Spain bring on a couple of substitutes. Xavi Alonso is one of them. But they don't just try and kill the game. They actually keep on going for a second goal and a third goal and a fourth goal. And I think that maybe wouldn't have happened in later tournaments when Spain become very wily, very efficient at basically shutting down games. But here they really wanted to score more goals. And yeah, that was almost quite a surprise to kind of revisit that. And there is also an element of taking out the pressure from the players, from Luis Aragonés. Before the game, Luis Aragonés, uh, he couldn't pronounce Michael Balak's name in the locker room, so the players were just laughing about it. And Luis Aragonés, uh, he realized that they were laughing about the way he was pronouncing Michael Balak's name. So in the tunnel before the game, Luis Aragonés uh, was talking to the players and Michael Balak was over there. And he was talking to Michael Balak and calling him Wallace in front of all the players. And the players were laughing about it. So I think that uh, Luis Aragonés was also very clever when it came to that 
to those moments because he knew that the best way for the players to come out to the final and play in Vienna it was them being happy and then having fun and he managed to get that of course then there was a 90 minutes game and as Michael said I mean it was a bit cagey and all that but I think that the element of Luis Aragon is taking away pressure from players cannot go unnoticed either and how did it feel for you? I mean, forget being a journalist. Yeah. As a Spanish football fan, to finally have a team that lives up to their potential. It's strange because I think that the biggest happiness for me came when Spain beat Italy in the quarterfinals. And I think that it happens like this for every football fan. Your favourite ever game is not the key game, but another one that uh, people will end up forgetting about, but you don't. But I think that uh, I remember as a Basque person, I remember that the Spanish games were normally not shown on uh, bars. Not many people were talking in Bilbao about uh, the Spanish national team because, you know, uh, we had the Basque problem and all that, the terrorism at the time. And I remember that after Spain won the, the Euro Cup, I went out with a friend just to have a beer and we couldn't believe that there were some uh, uh, drivers just honking their cars and uh, in one of the main Bilbao squares, Plaza Moyua, there was a huge party. It is the first time in my life, and I was 25 at the time, that I, I saw a celebration related to Spain, the country, in the Basque country. That was the first time I saw something like that. And for me, it was, it was something important because I, I saw for the first time that perhaps there was uh, some more freedom of speech than uh, I could have thought of. Two years later, hmm. World Cup, a new coach, uh, Vicente Del Bosque, that's in his native Essex there, <laughs> um, and a new feeling of confidence about the team, Alvaro. Yeah, I think that Vicente del Bosque tried to bring his own ideas to the team. Uh, in fact, if you if you check the the first list that he gave, there were some players and then uh, they didn't come back. Uh, Albert Riera, uh, Diego Capel, some players. Uh, Albert Riera played for Liverpool, in fact, as far as I remember. Yeah. So there were some players in there that Vicente del Bosque wanted to bring his own ideas. But he quickly realized that uh, maybe the 4-4-2 wasn't going that well for the team. So the Villa and Torres thing was a partnership that we didn't see that often. And then there was a huge problem for him. Marco Sena was gone. But at the same time, there was a huge blessing for him that Pep Guardiola was in Barcelona. And I think that Vicente del Bosque knew very quickly that if he could bring and import Barcelona into the national team, he had a winning team in his hands. It wasn't a great start for him. And uh, Spain's progress through the competition... They didn't exactly blow the doors off, did they? Vorsicht, die Schweiz im Strafraum drin. Jelson Fernandez. Tor! Tor! Tor für die Schweiz! The first game of the World Cup, they were, I mean, really poor against Switzerland. You know, sometimes you get these shock results first game of a tournament, but, you know, shocks can happen in football. But I was quite surprised. I remember watching this at how lacking penetration and lacking threat Spain were. They played Silver and Iniesta as the wide players come inside. Xavi almost as the number 10. And it was almost like they had five players in his own where really, compared to Barcelona, you know, they'd only have three there and Barcelona would have, you know, wide players going in behind, stretching the play. Spain didn't really have that. And of course, they continued with the tiki-tack away with trying to keep possession. But thereafter, they always included a player who offered a bit more penetration, whether, you know, Fabregas coming off the bench or Jesus Navas played a big role in that World Cup. And it took a while, well, it took two years really before they went to playing you know, two playmakers in the wide positions again. Yeah, because this was a period of uh, Busquets and uh, Xabi Alonso in the same team. Too cautious, Alvaro? I thought so. 
and uh, many many people in public in, in media thought so as well. But uh, Vicente del Bosque, after the defeat against uh, Switzerland, uh, when uh, the critics to Sergio Busquets were harsher than ever, uh, he said something that, uh, in a way, exonerated Busquets. Uh, he said, if I were a player again, I would like to be him. So I think that was the best way of uh, killing off all the controversy or all the debate about Sergio Busquets. And um, losing against Switzerland was obviously something hard for Spain because uh, there was this feeling that it was now or never in World Cup 2010. But then there were a couple of nervy games in the group stage that Spain managed to handle, but uh, they were very difficult, both of them. And after that, there was a fresh start. Spain knew that they were on course to, to win the World Cup. The semi-final, Michael, that's the bit that you focus on in the book. Um, why is that? Yeah, it's interesting what Alvaro says about it's not always the final you remember. I mean, this was... You know, not a great final, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. But, I mean, Germany really were, in terms of getting to the best level, I think they were the best team in that tournament. They scored four against Australia, four against England, uh, four against Argentina. They really looked like the, the side to beat, even if they weren't the outright favourites. But I think what you saw in this game was a complete clash of philosophy. Xavi's corner. Puyol with a flying lead. Carlos Puyol scores for Spain. Spain are just more proactive. They can take the game to the opposition. Their pressing is much better than Germany's or anyone else's really in the competition. Germany at this stage are a pure counter-attacking side. And it's almost like they're just waiting. They're sitting back waiting for the concessions of possession and then go to counter as they did against England and Argentina. And one, Spain don't give them that opportunity. And two, after Poyol heads, them, uh, heads the winner, Spain just keep the ball. And Germany just aren't accustomed to pressing. They aren't accustomed to going looking for the ball. And then I think, you know, that leads to the development of German football. Two years later, and particularly four years later when they win it, you see that they've learned a lot from Spain. The players are always citing Spanish players as examples. Guardiola, of course, goes to uh, Bayern and brings some, you know, different influences there. So this was, yeah, for me was almost the... uh, the final in terms of the best two sides and I think probably the best knockout game as well. Well, particularly as the final was uh, uh, very much a knockout game in a very different way and that the Dutch quite clearly decided that they weren't going to be able to match Spain on technique. Um, so they decided to uh, essentially kick lumps out of them until they stopped twitching. Yeah, and um, the referee Howard Webb, he was very permissive uh, when it came to bookings. But I believe that uh, Spain knew how to handle that. And they didn't become hysteric, which could have happened considering it was a, a World Cup final. I remember the words of Andres Iniesta uh, just uh, years after the World Cup saying that he wasn't surprised with Mark Van Vommel being that hard because they played together for a number of years and uh, he knew, Iniesta knew that Van Vommel was going to play that well and uh, of course there, there is this uh, kick from Nigel de Jong on uh, Xavi Alonso's uh, uh, chest I believe that if Xavi Alonso takes off his shirt now you will still see the barbecue marks in there Por favor Por favor Pero, y, y hay que creerse que no le ha visto. Y hay que creerse que no le ha visto. Es una barbaridad. Este es Howard Webb. Es, es el miedo que teníamos, que no puede permitir esta cosa. Es increíble. But, uh, Spain knew that the biggest threat in there was uh, Arjen Robben and uh, Capdevila, one of those underrated players, was tremendously well surrounded by Busquets, Xavi Alonso or Xavi, just uh, helping uh, Capdevila with Robben in the one-on-ones. And I believe that uh, Spain had the position, perhaps they didn't have the edge until the edge and especially the sharpness until the, the final extra time, but uh, overall they were, they were better and... Uh, 
all the players, I would say, that played monumentally, uh, the Spanish players, especially, I believe that Iniesta was fantastic. And if you watch that game until the 115 minute, and uh, you forget about Iniesta's goal, you will still say that Iniesta was the best player overall. That was when Iniesta scored, everybody knew that uh, that scoreline wasn't going to change because Spain knew how to defend themselves with the ball. So that's the European Championships in the bag, that's a World Cup in the bag. Only thing to go on is try and do it all over again. Um, they got the first bit right, but again, with this Spanish team, even though it's a similar generation of players, it's a different sort of team, isn't it, Michael? Yes, there's two big injury absences. One is uh, Colas Poyol, which means Ramos moving into the middle alongside Piquet. Uh, and the other, probably more significant, I would say, is David Villa is also out. Four years before they would bring in Torres, there'd be no problems there. Torres is kind of in his Chelsea phase, so isn't really looking sharp. Um, so they start the tournament with Fabregas up front, which I gather was a surprise to the players. They hadn't really worked on that in training. And it was quite a late decision by Del Bosque to say, actually, we're going to play Fabregas as the false nine. And at this point, they've gone back to playing with Iniesta and Silva in the wide positions. So it's just three midfielders. There's no winger there. There's no forward there. It's it's a team of you know four defenders and six midfielders. And I think at this tournament, they go even further towards you know this almost complete possession dominance and just starve the opposition of the ball and of course if you're part of football twitter at this time and twitter's development there's a kind of schism between everyone who's watching football as to whether this spain side are really really good or really really boring well i believe that they they knew how to maximize what they had spain didn't score many goals in fact they did against italy in the final but during the tournament it was difficult for them to score and i believe that that doesn't come from an idea I mean, it wasn't a Spanish idea, uh, the Spanish idea not to score. It was, in fact, an inability to score goals. Uh, it wasn't a catenaccio, per se, not at all. But uh, there was no Villa. Uh, Fernando Torres uh, wasn't in a good shape, even though he scored three goals in that competition, but he wasn't in a good shape. And Fernando Llorente was absolutely knackered because he had played the season under Marcelo Bielsa. And I was talking to Fernando Llorente back at the time uh, in the in the pre-season in Austria, and he couldn't even move. And Javi Martinez either, <laughs> both athletic de Bilbao players. So there was a hint that Spain could play with a 4-6-0 formation because Barcelona had won the club World Cup six months before with that formation. But of course, Barcelona had Messi and uh, Spain didn't have any, anyone who could look like a midfielder but score goals like a striker. So as the tournament progressed, they became much more clever. They knew how to use their resources and uh, some other teams like France, for example, or like Portugal, they were very good as well, but they didn't have uh, that extra thing that you need in the extra moments. And in Spain, I think that in that Euro Cup in particular, it was Iker Casillas. They beat France 2-0, two goals from Xabi Alonso. They scraped through on penalties against Portugal in the semi. There's a Spanish team winning on penalties. So it's yeah. generally a positive thing. And then comes a final against Italy. They go back to playing without a striker. And I've got to admit, when this game kicked off, it was, OK, you've got a, a possession-heavy, to be diplomatic, Spanish team against Italy. Not going to be many goals in this one. Yeah, so Fabregas came back in up front. They'd tried a bit of Torres, they'd tried Negredo, and as Alvaro says, Lorente wasn't really an option. But the interesting thing about this is, uh, if you look at kind of heat maps or touch maps between the two games against Italy, which bookended Spain's competition, 
Fabregas is playing up front in both of them. But the first game, he basically plays as an extra midfielder. He's always coming deep. He's always coming to, you know, getting the ball to feet. In the final, he's playing basically as a striker. He's going in behind the defence. He's stretching the play. And I think that brings another dimension to the way Spain play. And they were really threatening in the first 20 minutes. And they go ahead through a brilliant goal with the the three forwards, if you like, combining Iniesta, Fabregas and, uh, and Silva with a header. And that's the kind of goal. I don't think they were really threatening to score that kind of goal. Uh, certain stages of the tournament before that because they weren't offering that movement in behind. Um, and this was, yeah, just a, an incredible first-half performance. Fabregas starts forward, round the outside of Chiellini, who tried to hold him up. The ball's in. David Silva has struck goal for Spain. 4-0 it ends up. And Spain are there. European Championships, done. World Cup, done. European Championships retained, done. World Cup in 2014... <gasps> What happened? Well, I think that Vicente del Bosque wanted to be very loyal to the team that uh, gave him two titles back to back. And uh, perhaps he should have applied a couple of changes in, to that national team. In fact, there is a story that uh, at some point Vicente del Bosque got very angry in the way to World Cup 2014. He didn't like the way that uh, some uh, veteran players were training and uh, he pointed at Coque in the locker room and Atletico de Madrid youngster at the time and he pointed at him and he said this guy has the hunger and the attitude but you have lost it and there is this story that uh, probably is true that some of the players didn't treat the national team with the same level of interest as before is multifactorial obviously Barcelona and Real Madrid have had many problems in La Liga Many players, Casillas, Xavi, Iniesta, Arbeloa, they, they weren't in good terms or they hadn't been in good terms and they had fixed the relationship. But obviously Spain wasn't the fresh team that was in 2008 anymore. And uh, I believe that the revolution in the Spanish team, if not revolution, the evolution of the Spanish national team should have come a bit sooner, probably in 2014 rather than in 2016. Michael, what's the legacy of this Spanish team? Well, I think of all the sides we've discussed in this series, it's the most obvious legacy. They really did inspire everyone to start playing possession football, whether that was their natural style or not. We saw that particularly with the German side who became more proactive, even in English football. And and we weren't blessed with the technical quality of Spain, but there's still a kind of this desperation that we've got to start dominating the ball because that's the kind of style that wins games. So you almost can't separate the legacy of this Spain side and the legacy of Guardiola's Barcelona side. But for that four-year period, it's just complete dominance. Uh, unlike, I, I think, anything I've known in my time following football where this is just the way to play. Well, if you want to read about that period of time and about all the other periods of time in the last 20, 25 years of European football... You know what you need to pick up, don't you? That is all we've got time for this week. Thank you, Michael and Alvaro. The book, Zonal Marking, is out now. It's in hardback, ebook, audiobook. You'll find it all over the place. It's really, really good. Buy it right now. Join us next time for our final episode. We'll be joined by Rafa Honigstein to discuss Bayern's treble success in 2013.